Quick plug, don't forget to take the NPR One app with you on your holiday travels. And keep up with the best from public radio and beyond, including all of your favorite podcasts. One of those podcasts should be Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It is the NPR News Quiz. Host Peter Sagal and panelists like Alonzo Bowden, PJ O'Rourke, and Paula Poundstone say things on the radio that most people just shout at the radio. You can find Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, and we're here today with a different kind of episode. We're going to talk with my friend and colleague, Asma Khalid. She's a member of the Pod Squad, and she's going to talk today about what it was like to cover the campaign and the election of Donald Trump as a Muslim female reporter. I'm Sam Sanders. I'm Asma Khalid. I covered demographics in 2016. I'm Sarah McCammon. I covered Republicans and Donald Trump. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. So we will get to all the week's big news in politics in our roundup, which will be out tomorrow evening, Thursday evening. Um, And though this week got a bit busy, we're still trying to bring you one episode earlier each week, too, usually on Mondays or Tuesdays. But for those that didn't hear our latest episode, me and Asma should say at the outset, and sorry if this is your first time hearing it. So long. Goodbye. Well, not yet. <laughs> not yet. We'll be here through the inauguration. Um, but I um, am headed to Boston, where I'll be reporting on biz and technology for WBUR. Uh, but I am around uh, through the inauguration. I'll still be at NPR post-inauguration, but I will be working with our crack producer, Brent Bachman, to make some new podcast stuff for NPR and for you guys. It'll be non-political, but it'll be fun. More good stuff from Sam Sanders. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. For sure. You know, and so before we leave, we're going to talk about what it was like for you, Asma, as a Muslim woman to cover this campaign and the election of Trump. And strangely enough, today, Wednesday, December 7th, 2016, is an exact year to the day that Donald Trump uh, proposed a ban on Muslims coming to the country. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. So, Asma, let's start the conversation there. Um, You are identifiably Muslim. You wear the hijab, the headscarf, and people know as soon as they see you who you are. But you also said when this news came out last year, a year to the day, it really didn't strike you as that much, right? It didn't. And it might sound strange in hindsight, but I remember, you know, in my email Outlook uh, inbox, I keep folders to try to keep myself organized for different candidates and subjects. Uh And so I had a Donald Trump folder and I dumped it into the Trump folder. And actually, Sarah, it was you, I remember, who got up from your desk and you were going over to the editors and everyone was sort of, you know, in this tizzy about the news. And, And I looked actually at you, I remember being like, well, what is this? And I pulled it out of that Trump inbox folder and read it again. And and I said that it, it wasn't, I guess by that point, there had been so many things that had been said either personally or virtually over the Internet to me about being Muslim that sort of the the attack or the idea or the insinuation of a ban against or about Muslims like didn't really strike me as news in that moment. Yeah. I know in hindsight that probably sounds sort of strange, 
but I just didn't realize that it was a newsworthy moment. We should also bear in mind that a year ago, believe it or not, Donald Trump was not Donald Trump as we know him today. Not only was he not president-elect, not only was he not the nominee, he was not really even the front-runner. It was after the San Bernardino shootings, which had preceded this suggestion from him about banning Muslims, that he really started to emerge. Prior to that, people like Ben Carson had been doing better in Iowa. Uh, They'd been doing better in many polls in other parts of the country. And Donald Trump still seemed a little bit like a kind of candidate, but he was so unconventional, so different from the other Republicans, that even when he did well in the polls, people weren't really expecting him to contend for the nomination in a serious way. So, you know, Asma, part of the way that you approached covering all of these stories this year was informed very much by your upbringing. You are a proud a Midwesterner. Talk about where you come from and how that's informed your work this year. I like year. to say proud Hoosier. That's okay. what we say then, in Indiana about ourselves. All right, all right. Uh, so I grew up in the Midwest. I was born in the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest. I went to college in the Midwest. Um, most of that time was spent in Indiana. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that was difficult for me to process this election cycle was that, you know, I was um, a brown girl growing up in a predominantly white town, but For the most part, I always felt like we were part of the club. Our family was part of the club. The club being? The club being, you know, Hoosiers, Midwesterners, or um, or, or whatever that club was. We weren't the outsiders, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I I sold Girl Scout cookies. I was captain of the tennis team. Like, you were part of that club. And, And I never felt that folks didn't see us that way. And I think this election cycle, to me, exposed the degree to which you know, people did see me as an outsider, at least for that yeah. first impression. You know, so Asma, you wrote this phenomenal piece uh, that went on our website this morning all about your experience covering the campaign as a Muslim woman that was wearing the hijab, the headscarf. Mm-hmm. Um, and you spoke to some really stark examples of the ways that you were treated at some points. For folks who haven't read that yet, can you walk us through, I guess, one or two of those moments? Sure. And, and I mean, I should say at the outset, like writing this piece was something I think I internally battled with. It a took bunch. you a long I mean, Just about. Watching you do it, it, it was a process <laughs> for you. It took a while to write it. I think I started it last week. And um, I think it was hard to write. I think it was hard to sort of process exactly, you know, certain moments that had happened on the campaign trail. But I also think, for me at least, it was very cathartic. And that's why ultimately I did it. I think that I needed to write it. You know, it was funny last night as we were sitting there with the edits, one of my editors said, you know, we don't need to publish this. This was after we'd been sitting there for like three hours editing the thing. (laughs) And I said, well, now we've spent so much time editing it. And he's like, no, but, you know, if it was just for you to sort of get this off your chest, um, that's okay if you're worried about repercussions, which, I mean, to be honest, I was. I've deleted the Twitter app off my phone. So in case anyone's tweeting at me, I'm sorry. I'm not actually seeing those tweets. Um, Just because I think throughout the campaign cycle, it was healthier to disengage at moments with some of the negativity. There was one moment you write about in the piece where you're out with a canvasser Mm. and you end up at a woman's doorstep and it gets pretty ugly. Yeah. You know, I I went out and did a lot of these door-to-door canvassing um, moments. It's sort of what, you know, you often do as a radio reporter, particularly if you're trying to connect with voters. This was the last canvassing that I did, I believe, all campaign season. It was in Ohio. And I was really interested in hearing from white working class voters. You know, these voters had really been, I think, in some ways, the the story of this election cycle. So we went to this neighborhood in South Columbus and... um, 
we knocked on the door of this woman. She opened the door and uh, sort of off the bat started explaining that one of her top priorities this election cycle was the need for people to maintain their guns. She was pretty polite, you know, was engaging with the canvasser. I, in these moments, don't talk. I'm just off to the side. So long as they're okay with me recording it, I just record the conversations, don't talk. And um, this woman's mother came to the door and she started yelling. Uh, She came outside on the porch and looked squarely at me and said, you know, you need to get off my property. She needs to get off my porch. And I, I think what troubled me in this moment was like there were ultimately two of us never mind that I was actually not the one talking saying anything um and the sort of visceral um visceral reaction was directed only at me just because, because of what of you were wearing you I mean were. ultimately that's what I I can presume because um, of the headscarf yeah I mean she never said that exactly but then she ended up going inside her daughter quieted her hushed her and sort of said you know mom look that the canvassers came here to talk to me and her mom eventually relented she slammed the door behind her but as the canvasser started asking more questions, I could still hear this woman in the background and saying, you know, oh, my God, there, there's a Muslim on my front porch. This is even more ridiculous. Ugh. So then it was clear to me that, yes, I was sort of the focus of her consternation at that point. Um, and I think what sort of seemed so strange to me was that I had never been in this moment where it was such such a visceral reaction to your appearance or to who you are as this sort of, I, I guess you could say this caricature maybe of who you are. Yeah. And You know, I talk a lot in the piece about growing up in Indiana. One of the things that I fundamentally believed, and maybe folks could say it's naive, was that if you engaged with people, ultimately you could win them over, right? That people trusted you no matter what their political background or their religious background. I mean, I had many friends who grew up, you know, in very religiously conservative Christian households, people, you know, all throughout my life who are Trump supporters. But I think that ultimately you could engage with folks and they would see you as a human. And in this moment, it felt like this particular woman didn't want to get to know me. And she had already come up with her own opinion or or sort of caricature of who I was. And I think that was really hard to swallow. Because, How did you feel in that moment? I, I mean, I felt like this woman, or, or maybe, I mean, I don't know. I, I think I felt like there are people, you know, I I called it, I think, in the story that these are my people. And it was really hard for me to swallow that some of my own people Hmm. ultimately hated me. And so to me, that was just this really confusing moment of realizing that you could try to tell people stories and and try to empathize with them. But there are moments when people Hmm. don't really want to reciprocate that empathy. How many moments like that happened in the campaign? I mean, you talk about a few examples. That was the most extreme. But there were other days, days there where you would call days. me and say, this thing happened, Sam. Like, I know. There, there were, were a days, few instances. I remember crying one night and calling you, Sam. Like, there were days, yes. And and I did confide a lot in you, Sam. I don't know. And Sarah maybe, and Scott. Yeah, I think squad. a lot of you guys. Yeah, I, remember because... <laughs> text, I remember your text after that Ohio incident. And, and it's it was hard as a colleague to know, you know what to say, except because my experience, I mean, I have blonde hair and blue eyes. It was nothing like that. And we were talking about this earlier, just like the layers of work you have to do to get with people to the level of just sort of acceptance that I just am automatically given just by the way that I look. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's like I worried about you. I felt really sad. And and that wasn't the only time. It wasn't the only time. Um, I would say that the frequency of such blatant, behavior was uncommon in the phys- in the real okay. world, I should say. It so, wasn't like this was happening I mean, so most days were good days, right? Um, Would you say that? 
I would say that most days are still sort of often struggles. I mean, a lot of what Sarah was saying, I think, is is really on point, you know, that a lot of times what happened was very subtle. Huh. So I would be walking through a pumpkin patch in Ohio and say hello to a gentleman, and you would see him physically recoil uh. from just the sheer act of saying hello. Like physically back away. Yeah. And so he wasn't hostile and he outwardly, was with his but children. it was just like, yeah. I mean, he was with his children, and in that moment, I huh. just, like, to me, what sort of broke my heart was that, like, I had grown up in places like this. I used to go to the pumpkin patch yeah. every single fall, and I can never imagine my mother treating people like this, even yeah. if they had in some ways, you know, dressed or behaved in some way that she might have found threatening, she would have the decency yes. to treat them with respect. And so I just that... felt like that was the the lack of respect was common. And, and I talked a lot about, you know, part of growing up in Indiana, though, gave you this armor, this ability to sort of figure out how you navigate these spaces, these very white worlds. And um, and I think that's an amazing skill set. Like I would often say that. I think part of the whole election of this campaign for me was always twofold. Part of it was, yes, you know, I'm very visibly identifiably Muslim. But the other part of it was that, you know, for most of my life, I lived in Indiana, you know, uh, a very I lived in a very white world. And so for me, the ability to sort of navigate these spaces, figure out from a very young age how to make folks feel comfortable was a really important skill set. And I think that's what I was, I hope, able to bring you know, to bear throughout the campaign. So I want to ask Ron a question. You know, I mean, Ron, when I hear Asma talk about her experience, it seems completely unique to this year and this time. But historically, looking back, have there been other eras in our history where some of the things that we're hearing right now have occurred to journalists? Or I mean, like, I- I'm thinking back to, like, the civil rights movement. Like, was this that kind of environment for some journalists? Yes, indeed. And, and truly, the tendency we have as people is to judge quickly when we see a new person and a person coming toward us with a microphone uh, or just somebody that is approaching us in a political context, you know, not in a high school, not Mm -hmm. in a church, not in a place where you have had time to become accustomed to them, but just in in a moment. And when you see that person, you're likely to judge them on the most superficial, most immediately fear-based kinds of differences. And we've been doing that forever. And certainly in this country during the civil rights movement, but always really, people have had a tendency to see a person and see their race first. And and of course, in this case, we're talking more about religion and, and a religion that's really only betokened by the hijab. And without that, you, people would not make an immediate people assumption. People wouldn't know who you are. And I mentioned this in the essay, but a couple of times I didn't wear a scarf. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I would say, light-skinned enough that without a scarf, I'm just sort of a a generic ethnic curiosity. You know, I, I don't know. You guys maybe have guesses as to what I mean. I don't really know that folks would know exactly. I knew as soon as I saw it. could yeah. be Native yeah, American. But, but, Who but, knows? But, 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 Americans no. have been conditioned in recent years, probably more than even in the distant past, to be fearful. Sure. of people who are wearing a headscarf and, I mean, and were wearing a burqa, which is, of course, a big controversy like, Ron, in I Europe. I understand that. I mean, I know that sounds weird. I mean, I would tell this sometimes to Muslim friends, and, and you did. I, I remember, you know, people feeling like I was a masochist because I could understand the fear. I'm not saying that I thought it was a, a, a justifiable fear, but I could understand it. And ultimately, you know, there were people who I know had a lot of uh, concerns, questions about Muslims. You know, one gentleman I met specifically wanted to share with me, I met him at a Trump volunteer training, why he thought 
essentially the Muslim ban was good for Muslims. And, you know, he, he warmed up to me and decided that I was sort of a, a safe Muslim. And basically his logic was that, you know, that there are some Muslims who believe that they should come to the United States and commit violent acts. And he wanted to protect the, you know, purportedly good ones like me. And so in order to do that, he needed to, you know, that this sort of vetting or Muslim ban would protect these good ones so that I would not end up in an internment camp. Um, you know, it was funny. I remember calling my husband after this and saying, you know, strangely, I, I understood this logic. I was happy that he shared it with me. It made me feel sort of devastated and somewhat humiliated. I didn't agree with the logic. I mean, I, I also thought in some ways that's a, a somewhat faulty logic, but I can understand it. And that's what I think frustrated me at times was that my mission throughout the whole year and a half was to understand where yeah. people were coming from. I mean, I had a very singular mission in the sense that I wasn't tasked to covering one candidate or the other. I was tasked to covering voters mm -hmm. and, and understand how politics intersected with their lives, why they were maybe potentially fearful of a certain, you know, either type of people or specific policies. And I tried my best to always understand where folks were coming from. And on a very basic human level, it felt like that wasn't always reciprocated. I'm curious when you say that you can understand it because I I wonder I wonder how that works for you. I mean, I guess I can I obviously, you know, that there are threats all, all the you know, all sorts of threats from all sorts of people and sometimes in this country they come from Islamist extremists. So I guess I understand it on that level, but at the same time I I try to put myself sort of in your shoes if someone was saying something that was overtly misogynistic, it's hard for me to sympathize or empathize with that. So how do you think about people who are sort of anti-Muslim. I guess it's almost like you bifurcate your brain a little bit. Huh. And so I guess I'm essentially very curious. I, I want to know and I want to hear what they think. Um, you know, to me, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm really curious to understand why folks think this way. I also don't see it as a personal affront because like I, you know, I mentioned in the piece, there are people who ostensibly I knew who had uh, questions or they, they felt like Muslims in the abstract were a problem, but they saw our family as being acceptable. So I sort of knew folks who felt that way throughout my life. Like this wasn't a very foreign idea to be okay with Asma the individual or Asma's family, but sort of deem the greater uh, sort of, you know, issue of Muslims perhaps as a problem. So that ability to sort of distinguish the individual from the mass is something that I think I had grown accustomed to. Um, I mean, I remember I was at a retirement community uh, probably just a couple, uh, maybe a month or so before the election, and it's in Sumter County, Florida, a uh, particularly Republican section of the state, and there were um, two men I was speaking with. One of the gentlemen was a Democrat, the other one was a Republican, and I was interviewing the Republican, and the Democrat beside him, their, their good friend, said, you know, oh, he, he, he feels uncomfortable with you because of the scarf. He started motioning in the background. And so the friend said, oh, what is he saying? Is it because of the scarf? And I remember on mic, I said, oh, if you do, you can tell me. Like, I don't mind. And I know that that sounds like a crazy thing to say out loud. Like, I don't mind. But it was like, it's almost like you have this out-of-body experience. Like, I don't take it personally if yeah. they... Feel. I mean, I I do sort of take it personally afterwards. Ultimately, right? You you do sort of think about the tape and how they sort of. But I I guess I also still am like fundamentally very curious to understand why folks have fears like these, why they're you know sort of um, afraid of certain types of people. And I think that that's important. Like that's our job. It and is. I don't think anyone gets into this job because they're not you know fundamentally really curious to understand why folks think 
uh, about certain things. I mean, I, I don't know that I anticipated 2016 would be an election cycle where Muslims, you know, would be potentially seen as a political problem to the degree that they were by some folks. Um, if I had known that, I don't know, I told my editor if I would have signed up for the job at the get-go. Um, but I think, like, we're all curious. We want to understand why folks feel a certain way, and you know, particularly when you're covering voters. And what was, like, for me, covering the campaign as a black man, I was surprised by how often my curiosity was rewarded with strangers telling me things about race that mm-hmm. I knew they had never told anybody mm-hmm. else. And I'm sure you experienced the same thing, Osmo. What do you mean, though, Sam? I'm curious. There yeah. was this moment in Iowa, before the Iowa caucuses, I was uh, talking to a guy in West Des Moines. And he wouldn't tell me who he was going to vote for in the primary or caucus, rather. But he did say that he was really interested in what Donald Trump was saying about immigration. So I said, well, tell me more. And he said, well, you know, we've got all these people coming in here from all these different countries. And I feel like it's too much. And let's be honest, he said, you know, America is a country for European white Americans. And so he said it. And I saw his eyes I saw him notice that he was saying that to me, a black man in America, a descendant of black slaves who were brought here against their will. And so I gave him this kind of stare, like, do you want to reconsider what you're saying? I didn't say that, but like I gave him this look kind of like, "Mm, really? And he stops and he pauses and he realizes. Is that your final answer? Yeah. And he goes, well, you know what, though? America is here for European immigrants and white Americans and Black slave descendants, and that's kick-ass, he says. He says, that's kick-ass. And so I just wow. keep listening because I want to know, right? I want to yeah, know. Yeah, you want to know. I, I want to give him that catharsis. And he keeps talking, and I keep listening. I don't challenge him. But by the end of our conversation, this man is inviting me into his house to have beers with him. And it was like you. Yeah. throughout the year. And that's a part of this. Because yeah. so, this happened to you. This happened to you. Asma. It happened so many yes. times that people would invite you to their homes. Uh, they wanted to give me hugs often at the end of the interview. Yeah. Um, and, and I should preface this by saying a lot of my interviews are long form, right? I go into people's homes yes. or I meet them, you know, say at diners. We chat for a while. But the amount of times that people wanted to give me a hug at the end of an interview or invite me to their home. There's a couple I met at a Trump volunteer training session in Florida who asked me to spend the weekend on their boat. Um, they, you know, you got yes? to talking to me. I didn't also because I was on deadline. But I finally, <laughs> you know what, I finally did take someone up on this offer because they were happening with such frequency because people would get to talking to you. And I don't know if it was just that you didn't fit the image of what they heard. And so they were also mutually curious. I mean, I don't want to imply that everything, you know, throughout the year was negative because I actually don't think that that's an accurate reflection of what happened. And I realized after a point that, you know, I was perhaps the first Muslim that some of these voters had ever met. Mm -hmm. And there's a woman uh, I met at a county Republican dinner in Colorado Springs. And we got to talking at the event, you know, had a good conversation. And I was interviewing someone else. And she came and stood behind me for a good, like, 10 minutes because she wanted to give me her phone number. And she said, well, hey, you know, honey, if you're around, you should stay. You should come over for tea. And I said, well, you know, I don't know. Um, But I was going to be in Colorado for a week on this reporting trip. And I took her up on the offer and I went to her house. And she offered me these home 
homemade chocolate chip cookies that she had made. And we got to talking. She asked me about my childhood at Indiana. She shared some stories about her childhood. She had grown up in neighboring Kentucky and, you know, asked me about the election, sort of how I became a journalist. And it was interesting. You know, she told me that I was the first journalist that she had ever invited to her house before. And I never asked her, but, you know, you kind of got the hunch that I was likely also the first Muslim who had ever been, you know, sitting there eating chocolate chip cookies at her kitchen counter. You know, I think there actually is an aspect to this that has to do with what we do for a living. And, and of course, we're talking about a lot of other identifications. But part of what people see us as is the media and we are the problem and we are against them in some way or we have been ignoring them. And even though we have traveled some distance and obviously are very eager to hear from them and are putting a microphone in their face, they still have this sense that we don't want to really hear from them, mm. that we're just there to take a picture and run home mm. and that, that we don't engage with them. And so they're hostile before the fact. And then if they see something else that makes them a little uncomfortable or if they feel as though they're being caught in a moment of intolerance, which they may well be, they get defensive about that and can go one way or they can turn around as you've described these other people and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not really me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to engage with you in a completely different way and I want to be able to say, I talked to a black journalist, I talked to a woman journalist, I talked to a Muslim journalist. And look at me. I am someone who is growing. And this is all, you know, for the best. This mm -hmm. is all for the best. This is part of how we not only understand the people in the country and our listeners and the people who aren't our listeners and the people who have preconceptions about NPR. It, it's, it's part of what can emerge from an election season that's positive. And then God knows we need something. Did you ever get a sense, Asma, or, or you, Sam, in talking to some of these people? Because this n never happened to me. Like, people will talk to me right away when I walk up to them, but they almost never, like, want to hang out later. So really? this is so interesting. Maybe I'm just not that charming. <laughs> no. You guys are pretty charming. But, but like, did you ever get in some of those conversations a sense, like, did anyone ever say to you explicitly, like, you know, you changed my mind about something? Or not that you were trying to talk to them in anything, but did you get a sense that interacting with you was changing anything about them? Not in any way that was ever verbalized that I can remember. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately there was a desire to invite me or to talk to me because maybe it was cathartic for them. I mean, I, I, and I, I use that word a lot yeah. this year. Like, I could see catharsis in people's eyes. And in those moments, I would want to take off any offense that I might feel and say, you know what? Catharsis is good. Yeah. And if you need to get this out, I want to be some. Something approaching some kind of safe space. Because you know you. what? At the yeah. end of the day, I think this election cycle exposed to me just how few people are having conversations yes. across different racial yes. lines or religious lines. And so, you know, when this woman invited me into her home, she's over 70 years old, grew up in Kentucky. There was a moment also where likely, like, how would she have had the opportunity to have engaged yes. with very different types of people? Um Ultimately, here she was. She had an opportunity. She invited me into her home. I chatted with her. I did not record this afternoon conversation. She sent me with chocolate chip cookies for the road. Oh. I took them, <laughs> yeah. and they were nice. And, yeah. and, you know, and I went back to Denver for, for the evening. But I, to me, like, I just felt like this campaign exposed such an ugliness that I had never seen before in America. And at times, I think I felt very unwelcome. So in moments where people did make me feel very welcome. 
I took it. And and look, maybe if I'm being honest, it was also cathartic for me because there yes. were moments too where I think I saw something in America that I had never seen before. Yeah. And it was very disappointing. And so when you have these moments of people just genuinely being kind, you know, sure, people can read into whatever motives they have or they want, but ultimately I'd rather choose not to do that. Yeah. I'd rather just sit there, have a cup of tea and talk to somebody yeah. and go on my yeah. way. And I also think that what I experienced this past year is that for a lot of our listeners, maybe even a lot of our white listeners, you and me, Asma, were the first people of color that they were having in-depth conversations about race with. Mm-hmm. I could tell that and feel that from the type of responses that we could get. Um, and it was weird because it was a conversation, but it actually wasn't because we were talking to them. But I found that sometimes people with the best intentions in our audience um, kind of tried to put us in a box. I will That's never true. forget... Um, after Hillary Clinton made her comments about deplorables. Um, I said in the podcast that I don't think that that is a constructive way to have a thoughtful, nuanced conversation about race. Because when you start with names and labels like that, you can't really get through any divide. And after that episode, I heard from dozens of white people on Twitter who I think would define themselves as liberal, who said, well, I don't think you're getting it right. Don't you know what racism is? You need to read that ta Coates article. He is a black writer for The Atlantic. And, you know, when people with the best intentions would tell me and Ozma what to think or what to say, sometimes I found that just as troubling as a door being slammed in someone's face. Mm. I mean, and people this was were ca- often, I think, bothered that, particularly, Sam, that you and I didn't say that certain things were racist. And... Again, maybe what people see now is they see a a girl in a headscarf who lives on the East Coast. But that's not who I was for most of my life, right? Like, there was, A, also a point where I didn't wear a headscarf. B, most of my life to this point in time has still been spent elsewhere. And I think what folks did not understand is, for me, that's a very complicated, loaded term, not a very descriptive word. It doesn't open up conversation. And it's limiting. Yes. Like, our goal is to facilitate more conversation amongst people that might not always agree. And part of that is choosing our words and what we say very carefully. I mean, I think that there were moments um, that both, I think, Sam, you and I experienced from, you know, folks who identified as liberal, uh, folks who affiliated with the Democratic Party, who saw, at least me, in a caricature as well. And, you know, so maybe, say, on the Republican side, at times, I was seen as this uh, caricature of a threat to some folks. On the Democratic side, I think I, I was seen as being part of the club. One woman wrote me on Twitter once saying that I should be thankful for what Hillary Clinton is saying, wow. that I shouldn't critique, you know, I, I don't know, I linked to something. Uh, and, and that, you know, in some ways I was seen that I should be supportive of Hillary Clinton's mission and I should be thankful for how she has spoken up about Muslims in XYZ capacity. And didn't you say that at the Democratic convention there were an awful lot of people trying to take your picture, uh, you know, network cameramen, uh, delegates, all kinds <laughs> of people. Look, 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 you know, you were emblematic. Yes, the night that Hillary Clinton was speaking, there was a point where I had two colleagues of mine, Scott Detrow and Tam, who formed a physical blockade in front of me because a cameraman was trying to take pictures. And I think I just, I fit the image of who they they thought should be looking up at the camera screen, you know, looking at Hillary Clinton. liberal progressive mascot. You were diversity personified. (laughs) And wearing a headscarf. Yeah, and so to me, like, those moments were so frustrating. I mean, I remember that night, actually, at the DNC, 
actually yelling at a cameraman. I said, why are you taking my photo? I told him, I was like, I'm a journalist. And he continued to snap photos. And I was like, what are you doing? I was like, I know what you're doing. And I've told you I'm a journalist. Like, I, this is not some sort of joke in my mind, you know, that you just yeah. sort of, like, take photos of, of, you know, exactly, like, diversity, quote, unquote, yeah. personified. And so, to me, like, there were moments like that that I felt very frustrated because, on the flip side, you were still a caricature. Yeah. You were still being viewed not as a 3D individual. And I think, Sam, for you and I, like, maybe I just feel like so many times you you go out, and maybe this is the case of all first impressions, but it's like in my mind, I'm so many things, yes. right? It's like in my oh, mind, yeah. I was like, I'm a Hoosier, I play tennis, I like to wear fashionable clothes. <laughs> like, there's all these things that I think I am, but you, you aren't those things. And I got to say, overall... At every Trump event that I've been to, at every RNC event that I've been to, I've been treated very, very, very kindly. The last Trump event that I went to this campaign season, um, a Melania Trump rally in Pennsylvania, a woman there in the crowd called me brown sugar and tried to kiss me. You know, I mean, like, I have not been mistreated at these events. I don't know. That might be mistreated. But, but like, (laughs) I have often felt othered. And that hurts because in my day-to-day life, I live my life like I'm not an other. I live my life mm-hmm. like I'm an American, mm-hmm. yeah. as do you. We live our yeah. lives as full and complete and 3D people. And to know and to feel that there are spaces that we walk into where we're not seen as that, yeah. that always hurts. I think that's the best way of putting it, Sam. I mean, you're right. It's that you're just not seen as a full, complete person. And I mean, Sarah, we've talked before about this. This has been a really hard year for women as reporters as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's been a lot written about this. I, I, I think I personally haven't experienced as much as some women have. I mean, certainly Donald Trump called out specific reporters, uh, some of them female by name. And, and, you know, if you just Google that, if you want to know what I'm talking about, you know, there was a lot of unfortunate things that happened. But um, certainly uh, myself and Tamara Keith and certainly Asma, you know, experienced there's something about being a woman online, uh, just about any negative word you can think of for a woman. Uh, I've heard it on on Twitter. And, it, and it, you know, it's, it's hard to put your finger on exactly why that is or what unleashed it. Um, but I think sometimes, especially when you're a political reporter and you're covering such emotional issues, people get angry. They feel free to attack you. And sometimes being female just gives them I, maybe one more way to attack you. I mean, it was completely vitriolic. I mean, and I often did not retweet the worst messages because my mom checks my Twitter feed. Uh. You know, it was always some combination and it all blurs together of like jihadi, bitch, ISIS supporting raghead, Uh. you know, sort of slurs all put together. And at some point you're like, really? Do you want Ma calling you being like, Asma? And then my mom's always, her advice is don't engage with these people. Yeah. And I was like, Ma, I don't engage. Yeah. <laughs> I and like, did any of this, Asma, did any of this make you feel less comfortable going back to Indiana or less comfortable thinking of yourself as a Hoosier or as an American? You know, it's, it's interesting, Ron, that I think in the immediate aftermath of the election, my sisters and I have a group chat. And, and I mentioned in the piece that one of my sisters, you know, was really disheartened when she saw the results from Indiana, not because she thought, oh, well, so many folks supported Trump. It was the belief she that she knew people. She knew intimate people, uh, people who had treated her like a second daughter, um, who had ultimately supported Donald Trump. And I think she was struggling to understand how that could be if if these folks had embraced her for years. You know, they saw her like a daughter. Um, what was it? You know, did, did folks, you know, not? like us growing up? Were they just pretending to like us? Were we tolerable to them? 
And I don't know the answer to that. Like, I have often thought, no, like, folks, we're not tolerating us. Uh, You know, I've gotten so many messages in recent weeks from very dear friends from elementary school and high school. I don't believe um, that people were ever merely tolerating us. I think that they got to know us. Um, And ultimately, when you have lived in the same town for, you know, so many years of your life, you played in the same activities, you all went to the same Girl Scouts club meetings, you know, you you knew one another, you went to each other's houses, your parents knew one another, that you were not a caricature because they knew you, they intimately knew your family. And, you know, to me, that's hopeful. But on the flip side, I also wonder sometimes, well, how many exceptions to the rule does it take for folks to think that, hey, maybe our preconceptions of this mass might be wrong? And also, how long does it take for people to realize that when it comes to large groups of people like blacks or Muslims or women, there are no rules? These are groups that cannot be defined because they're full of diversity within within themselves. Mm-hmm. But, but it seems like and this is true in politics a lot, but especially this campaign, so much has focused in on identity, on different groups of people. You know, is that where, – where do we go from a campaign like this? What I hear Ozma saying and what I've read in her piece is a plea for personal identity as opposed to group identity. And so much of what we mean when we say, quote, identity politics, unquote, is really races – genders, regions of the country, uh, people who are one kind of Christian or people who are another kind of Christian. Uh, We used to talk about Catholics and Protestants. Now we mostly talk about either mainstream or evangelicals, and there are some distinct voting patterns. And so anytime you look at these groups, you tend then to identify everyone in that group as being in some sense or another the same. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that in politics. It's always been part of politics. It's not a new thing any more than setting people off against each other because of their economic interests is new. All of these things are very old. But this year, it all seemed to have a fresh kind of rawness to it, in part because of the personality of Donald Trump, in part because of the campaign that uh, that Hillary Clinton was running, in which they were clearly depending on certain groups to turn out as groups and turn out in very high percentage numbers in order for her to win. And uh, all of that, I think, has fed a moment that is terribly disappointing eight years after the election of the first African-American president when people actually used the phrase post-racial politics and people were actually talking about that as something that might be a reality in our time. It's a disappointing development. I think one of the things we saw with this election, to kind of go back to Sam's point, is just uh, at least, you know, having covered the Trump campaign, having covered, talked to a lot of Republican voters l- around the country, is a feeling that they, too, have an identity that they felt was ignored and, and felt like, you know, uh, as a white person, as a rural person, as a Christian, whatever the categories may be, that sometimes they were lumped into one group. And, uh, you know, kind of a revolt against, against uh, you know, this perception that there was this elite out there that was not understanding them and not listening to them. Um, so... I think it's always worth pointing out that for any category of people, there there is diversity within that category. Oh, yeah. And as Osma noted, we all have a lot of different identities and play at once. The end of a campaign season seems like a logical time to talk about an issue like this. But also, some might say you could have been talking about this and what you've experienced all year. There is a reason you held back till now, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, I never wanted to 
be the story. I think that became somewhat difficult this election cycle because Muslims were so often a part of the political story. But my job was not to go out and argue with voters or to prove a point. You know, Sam, we've often talked about that. I think sometimes listeners want us to, you know, share more of our personal experience. But that's not my job. That's not what I want to do. I, I want to hear from voters. We're not the story. We're the sort of receptacle to yes. hear what folks have to say and then disseminate that information. Um And so, yes, you know, at times, and I mentioned this in the essay online, it was somewhat humiliating when people would say things that very much struck at your very sheer existence and you had a badge around your neck and a microphone in your hand and you just sort of awkwardly smiled and took in what they had to say. Um, But I don't think that it was my job. And I still stand firmly behind that belief that it wasn't the appropriate time. You know, the editors and I spoke about earlier when some of these incidents happened, should we sort of talk about it at this point. And I firmly said, no, I would much rather share these experiences at the end as a sort of reporter's notebook looking back on the year. And I also think in those moments that you or I or Sarah or or whoever could stand in that awkwardness and stand in that possible offense and listen, we learned more. True. We learned some of these motivations. We learned some of the inner workings of folks that lots of people think they can't understand. That is very true. I always learned more by listening more. That's ultimately what we sign up for as journalists. Exactly. Although I I just want to say thanks to both of you, Sam and Asma. Thanks to you, Ron. I've learned a lot from you. But I've learned a lot from Sam and Asma just working side by side with you. You know, I did grow up in the Midwest and lived all my life pretty much. You know, I've traveled. But in the Midwest and South – Asma, you're the first Muslim I've known well, and I've learned a ton from you. I mean, I've had we've had the most fascinating conversations and growing up and in realizing the, that we actually grew up religiously not that different. Yeah, so much. <laughs> yeah, we have so much in common. Growing up in like you know fairly conservative religious communities in the Midwest, and it you know I, me evangelical, you Muslim. I mean, it's it's kind of a beautiful irony. And and you know Sam, you've just been so open and thoughtful. And I know that there's a lot of burden placed on both of you as people of color. You know in times like these. So thank you for your your openness and your honesty and your graciousness. And I, I never feel like I can't ask you guys a question, which which is amazing. And 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 so I just have so and much important. respect for and you. And I both. hope that thank it's you. like reciprocal too. I mean I actually think that asking like questions of people you know is beneficial <laughs> always. Yeah. And I mean just Asma, it's like I know that this year was hard on you, but I also know Every day I'll hear from people in the real world, online, out on the trail. They'll tell me about you. And they'll say how proud they are just to, like, see you doing what you were doing all year. Because you were this symbol of, I think, a lot of American ideals that we aspire to. And you represent, on a good day or a bad day, some of the things that are the best of us. Mm -hmm. For me, at least, right? And so sometimes just you being there was this graceful, silent act that was in and of itself aspirational for people like me and lots of other folks that you've inspired. And so you should not forget that. Yeah, let's take a picture of that on the floor of the Democratic National Convention (laughs) or the Republican National Convention and put that out there. So, yeah. Thank you. Okay, that's a wrap. You'll hear more of me and Ozma before we say goodbye to the podcast in late January. And there'll be a new episode in your feed tomorrow that rounds up the week's news and politics. Until then, keep up with our coverage on your local public radio station or on the NPR One app. Also, do us a favor. Leave a review on iTunes if you like the show. And please, keep your questions coming. We'll do an episode on listener mail soon. 
You can write us or record a voice memo and send it to nprpolitics at npr.org. Last thing, if you want to say thanks to Asma and to the rest of the team for what we're doing and what we've been doing this election year, the best way to do that is to donate to your local public radio station. You can go to npr.org slash stations, find yours, give whatever you can, and tell them that we sent you. That kind of support has made all of our work this entire year possible. All right, I'm Sam Sanders. I'm Asma Khalid. I covered demographics in the 2016 election. I'm Sarah McCammon. I covered Republicans and Donald Trump. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.